episode 322, Cherry Picking, Lemon Dropping, and Other Learnings for Value-Based Care Models. Today, I speak with Monica Lipson, M-D-M-H-P-E. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Imagine if innovators in other businesses operated in the way that some healthcare status quo doomsayers finger wag. So much for failing fast, iterating, and folding learnings into something that might work better. I don't like to see screeds that seem to advocate an approach of in air quotes, try it a few times at a minimum half-heartedly, fail, and then just quit. Because obviously anything worth doing should be that easy. Pieces fell into place with me as I was speaking to Monica Lipson, M-D-M-H-P-E. Dr. Lipson is an expert in a bunch of things, but one of them is thinking about next generation primary care and health equity and what that might look like in value-based care metrics. I asked her if, because of some of the negative potential perverse incentives to these patient populations, whether we should throw out the VBC, value-based care baby with the bathwater. Her response was succinct and amounted to, and go back to what, FFS, because that's worked out so well. All this being said, there are big issues with value-based care right now that we really need to take a hard look at and think critically about. But that critical thinking, to be considered innovative and productive, really should inform creative thinking. What do we learn and do better next time? Cherry picking and lemon dropping is a very real potential problem with value-based care. To find out what that means, you'll have to listen to the interview. Another issue is who gets to decide what the measures and standards are? Who determined what is high value and low value care? And is that determination relevant to all communities and all care settings? Then ferreting out from there the potential loopholes for people to game the system, because despite all the virtue signaling that goes on around here, it is amazing sometimes the raw ingenuity exhibited when it comes to gaming the system. Dr. Lipson brought up some points that I have not heard so succinctly before. One of them is that a national framework is pretty necessary here to enable local initiatives. You can't have a local program, for example, help the homeless get homes when, on a national level, dollars are siloed into firewalled buckets. So trying to take healthcare dollars and apply them to housing takes two years in an act of Congress. Because it literally takes two years in an act of Congress, or at least someone with more time and authority than a local care team. For more insight into this topic, listen to also the upcoming interview with May Pham, as well as Nicole Bradbury and Kelly Conroy. Also, the recent interview with Dr. Rich Klasko, Jeff Hogan, and Dr. Mark Fendrick. This is a huge, complicated topic that will take everyone sitting at the table thinking creatively to solve, incrementally, one step forward at a time. Monica Lipson, MDMHPE, is currently Vice Dean for Education at Columbia University Vagalos College of Physicians and Surgeons. She has practiced in a number of primary care settings, including the Department of Veterans Affairs. MHPE stands for Masters in Health Professions Education, by the way. 
My name is Stacey Rector. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Monica Lipson, MD, MHPE. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Conventional wisdom would really presume that value-based care is good for underserved communities. If you've got social determinants of health, when they're at least part of the conversation, it would seem to make a ton of sense that value-based care, which tends to address social determinants of health in ways that a fee-for-service system just simply doesn't, you know, that that would actually be good for underserved communities. Can you just explain, you know, does this make sense? Do I have it right? Yes. So as Einstein says, uh, intelligence is being able to hold two competing ideas in one's head at the same time and realize they're both true. So as a believer in value-based payment systems and a believer in that is probably our next best approach to the healthcare system, I do believe that that is a fiscal mechanism to improve the care of the underserved. However, in the same breath, if you have the wrong incentives, if you create perverse incentives, you actually might make known healthcare disparities worse by allowing for the fiscal system to pick and choose patients that are best suited to meet your quality metrics or to meet the demand's value. Uh Uh-huh. And this is what we mean by cherry picking and lemon dropping, I'm assuming. Yes. I've even heard this applied in situations where patient shows up, has a BMI over a certain level or had a heart attack previously. I mean, not necessarily even in an underserved community. And the cardiologist is like, nope, sorry, can't fit you in. And I think that happens if I want to be Pollyannish, I will say it probably isn't done volitionally right? There's other things I can do to make me cherry pick those populations. Why if I only have office hours between nine and 12 on certain days of the week, potentially I'm only picking either patients that are employed and can get off of work or patients that are retired, right? Versus if I have evening hours, I'm much more acceptable, right? So there are ways that even the healthcare system that says, hey, I didn't discriminate against that one person. There actually might be systematic and structural ways that the healthcare system might say to a certain group in the population, we're not really interested in taking care of you. Some have used this cherry picking slash lemon dropping as a reason why fee-for-service is better than value-based care. What do you think of that position? I would say we've tried that experiment since 1965 and it hasn't borne out. In the sense that we've tried fee-for-service and it hasn't... We've tried to, right, and we have the same disparities and we have, right, we've actually tried that mechanism and we have issues around disparities, et cetera. And part of that, the incentive to have a good outcome is not there. The incentive to have another visit is there. In other words, say that we're dealing with someone that has some chronic condition who needs a kind of care that's really going to help them, which may not necessarily be office visit based. 
The only thing that fee-for-service incents is to get patients to come in for an office visit, which kind of inherently excludes those who, you know, to your earlier point, can't make it in between 9 and 5 Monday through Friday and or it might not help them anyway. Like if that's the only thing that's available, you know, because they need behavioral health or they need transportation or they need, you know, any of the other things that don't necessarily tend to happen in an office visit with for seven minutes with the doctor. Right. And we haven't, there was no overt mechanism to, to actually measure the quality. So again, if we even say most providers actually have the best intentions for their patient, regardless if it's a fee-for-service or value-based system, if you don't have systems in place to understand and connect the data points between the labs that might have happened outside of your system, the prior visit. If you don't have any connection in that system, even the provider trying to do best by the patient and provide a good outcome might be disconnected because the system is not in place to actually connect the lines for them or connect the dots fee-for-service winds up cherry-picking and lemon drop just less systematically, but it winds up happening just the same. The only indictment I have on the fee-for-service system is that it's gotten us to where we are right now. That system is not working, right? We have healthcare inflation. We have healthcare disparities. We are the nation in in the world that spends the highest amount on healthcare and our outcomes are middling, if not low, compared to our brethren. I was just looking at another statistic about maternal mortality in the United States. So what are the specific things, you know, because if we're saying the word patient outcomes, obviously that's open to interpretation. What what are the must-haves for a a value-based, patient-focused, fiscal system to create the outcomes that patients actually want and need and and drive that clinician satisfaction? If I knew the answer to that, I could retire. (laughs) Uh, here's, Here's my perspective, which is all I can offer. The systems that have been shown to work are those who really take a, the VA is calling it a whole health model. Or they're really looking at the whole patient as one. So the patient is not a sum of its problem list or healthcare problems. The patient is a person who presents often with a healthcare concern if they need healthcare, but those systems also typically offer access to things that make health a priority as well. So preventative services, a focus on both mental and physical parity issue. And now what we're learning as we deal with healthcare disparities and we want to focus on health equity, really understanding what the social needs of the patient and what's the social context of the patient as well and what that contributes to health. In the past couple of weeks, Dr. Grace Terrell from Aventus Whole Health was on the program saying exactly the same thing. In no uncertain terms did she say that you have to focus on mental health, behavioral health, the entire patient and what their wants and needs are. She works specifically with older patients who may be in in SNFs and, and in assisted living facilities, but that was her message. We also had Dr. Doug Eby from the NUCA System of Care basically saying the same thing. I can give you a real patient example. So I have a patient who is experiencing homelessness and has been without a permanent shelter for at least one to two years. 
and gets readmitted to the hospital. It's been this interesting conversation because what will actually eventually save his life is giving him shelter. He has reoccurring infections because it's going to happen as long as he remains undomiciled. There's not a lack of knowledge that that is exactly what needs to happen. The hospital knows that. Social worker knows that. I, as a primary care doctor, knows that. The hospital team that takes care of him every time. And every time we think we get close to finding him shelter, there's some issue that we find he's not eligible. It's sad. like Because the easy fix is the cost of housing this patient for one year would be cheaper than his next admission to the hospital. That's crazy. In a fee-for-service model, like that patient, actually the hospital's rewarded every time he shows up with an infection. That's correct. Maybe if I was going to sum this up, you've said this before. One of the big issues with value-based care not producing the results, maybe that it potentially could, is hovering in this messy middle between fee-for-service and value-based care where really the, the whole, you know, the system isn't necessarily set up entirely in a value-based care way such that that patient could get the help that they need. We still have the bureaucracy or whatever the issue is with FFS that's kind of clouding the picture. Right, exactly. Or the funding streams don't line up, right? How can I take money from healthcare dollars and put it into housing? Our systems are set up such that it would be conceptually difficult to move that money around. It is a little bit weird. I've always thought it was a little bit weird. It's like the principal agent problem, you know, where you have one entity that kind of has nothing to do with something somehow or another in charge of it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, why is the hospital in charge of housing? Like, it's just kind of a strange thing, but like, that's where we're at. How have you seen this work? There's two examples I can think of. I've spent up until the last year, I spent most of my career as a uh, staff physician for the Veterans Health Administration. Actually, within that healthcare system, it was actually a lot easier to kind of order up housing, meaning there was an initiative over the last two decades to house to end homelessness among veterans you actually had a much more nimble system where at least there were dollars allocated within that system to say, we need to house her in a way that will take care of it because we're actually probably, the whole system will save money in some ways by that. But even in that system, those were separate funding streams. You saw this at the middle of the opioid epidemic in uh, Vermont where the hospitals in Burlington, what they sort of realize is if we could discharge our patients to a stable shelter and we'll pay for that healthcare system, maybe we can save money. I think Kaiser is moving to a Thrive where they're trying to line up their membership with community resources. We're seeing this in small kind of pilot areas, the biggest one probably being the VA. But I think people are finally realizing we actually have to fix some of these structural issues if we really want to fix health. The one thing that what you just said reminds me of is... I've heard more and more lately the idea that, you know, healthcare is local, but obviously we have a whole 
country here. So, you know, if something solves an issue for three people, that's not necessarily going to make a dent in our overall healthcare system. I mean, obviously, it really makes a difference for those three people. But the idea that how change will happen is at a local level nationally. <laughs> that there's so many different diverse communities that trying to come up with the one size fits all across the entire country, you know, it's going to be the jack of all trades that doesn't really work for anybody. Do you see that differently or or what's your take on that? I have two thoughts about that. One is I agree. Each situation and each local condition is going to require, but the structural relief or the regulatory relief that you would need is the ability to kind of move money around, right, from one purpose to another, et cetera. And that can be done, I think, at the national level versus local level. What would be necessary to do at a broad stroke would be to create the infrastructure that would make it easy to create local programs, you know, make it easy to move money around, you just said. We want to move money around with the accountability of the patient outcome, right? <laughs> right. We, we want to be responsible stewards of that dollar. Relative to the infrastructure, so we've talked about the ability to ensure that we're not like creating these weird silos. I think this is super interesting. So like kind of underpinning everything, we need a construct that includes the ability to allocate dollars where they're most applicable and, and you know, finding the root cause of something and, and being able to, without, you know, cutting 17 balls of red tape, put dollars where they're most needed. And we, in our conversation, have to be very careful here <laughs> because... We also have to keep an equity framework. So if we keep an equity framework, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to get the same thing. They might get the same principal structures of what's evidence-based. But if we really take an equitable stance, there are going to be more people in a value-based system that need more of that system's resources. That's super interesting as a like first principle to wrap heads around the idea that if we want everyone to achieve a certain, maybe even minimum standard of health, that there's going to be some of us who need more resources applied in order to get us there than others. And I think the system should recognize that. Let me bring up something that which is frequently, you know, everybody's got their whiff them, right? Like, you know, everybody's, what's in it for me? I want what's best for my kid or, or my life, right? So if we're speaking about this in a whiff them standpoint, so I'm just wondering what your response would be to the people who think that by someone else getting more help, that they are somehow getting less. Well, take a, take a big picture of it. The only way I'm going to expand the the economy, right? Like the only way that I'm going to expand the economy as it is, is actually to get more people playing in that economy. So, right. And I think the example is we're living with right now from COVID until everybody else gets their COVID vaccine, you actually can't go back to life as you know. But I think that's, an, that's, that's a microcosm and an infectious disease model that sees that. I mean, I think that's true in diabetes. So if I see what's in it for me, why should I, why should my plan take care of the patients who are suffering from diabetes? Because your, your premium costs are going to go up if, 
right? Like you actually are part of the system. Right. You're part of the risk pool, regardless of whether... Regardless of whether or not you, right? So maybe the question is, do I want to do I want to feel it now or feel it later? I think that might be a more realistic decision that people are making, but I think everybody is going to feel it. And I think that's been the problem in healthcare. When we start to see double-digit inflationary costs within the healthcare system, we're all paying. Another Einstein quote is, um, there's always an answer which is simple, elegant, and completely wrong. Speaking of short-sighted and completely wrong, another impact of the COVID epidemic is that you've got these independent PCPs who are going out of business, which is just pretty much a fact. And I've had any number of guests, including Dave Chase and Dr. Guy Culpepper, et cetera, talking about the burden that independent physicians have been facing in the middle of this pandemic. But, you know, one of the implications that we haven't talked about on the show before is that when those local indies, they tend to reflect the doctors themselves and the healthcare teams that are in those practices tend to reflect the community that they're a part of. You know, like, why would you set up your small business if you're an indie doctor, you know, in a wholly separate community than you are a part of. So you get a lot of, and you use this term, which I love, concordance of the color and the ethnicity of the provider with the patients that he or she serves or that that team serves. There's an implication there when these indies go out of business what have you seen happen or what's your expectation of kind of this phenomenon and how it could impact the health of the communities? I think it's going to be devastating. I think it has been devastating. I think we just don't know the full impact yet of what the closure of these primary care independent practices are. The Green Center has been really trying to account for this. There's a National Academies of Science and Engineering report on primary care coming out May 4th-ish, I believe, on this issue. Because, in fact, I think we already had healthcare shortage areas, and I think those Areas are just going to become large deserts. And the issue around concordance is really, in some ways, important. It's hard to be something you cannot see. So in those communities, having healthcare professionals that look like the communities is important for the children and the adults in that community to see what's possible in terms of career opportunities. One aspect, it is often a shortcut in terms of understanding a patient's perspective. My conversations, I'm an African-American woman, my conversations with Black patients in the exam room is quantitatively different at times than I'm sure that my white colleagues experience. And some of that really is a shortcut. I can understand where they might be coming from. I might have had that same experience. Or more importantly, I'm actually willing to ask about it, right? I don't feel the same hesitancy about asking about, so what's your mental health been like given George Floyd verdict? Like, I have no issue just calling it out right away because I'm worried about it. I will assume my patient. The caveat around concordance is that skill set can be taught. That is not a skill set. There's nothing special about this skill set. It's just shorter. It's easier for me to get there. But I also 
worked in Michigan, took care of a lot of patients in northern Michigan. But that's a skill of me being willing and open to listening, right? It's active listening. We know that race concordance is easy. Is It shows outcomes, race and language concordance. I don't want to forget about language concordance because I think that is just as important. It helps. I can help a patient navigate around structural barriers, structural racism right? Much easier than others. But that doesn't mean that others can't. I just think within a 15-minute visit, it's a little easier for me to do. When you talk about a shortcut, you mean a shortcut to patient trust, which any number of studies anywhere has shown that if the patient doesn't trust the provider, you know, good luck with that. Like, it's just, it's not gonna go so well. But, and I can also blow it. I can blow that immediate trust as well. So don't be so, right? So it's not, it's, it's not a sure thing. It's something to work on. But yeah, it, it, it's probably more short-circuited. And well, but it's still trust. One of the issues with these, the indie practices, PCPs in particular going out of business is that what winds up happening is that all those patients then become served by the large health system which may not have as many, as much concordance. Just might not be as sensitive, right? So this is a new care provider. That is, we have a shortage of primary care doctors and providers, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So who knows if the large healthcare system can actually handle the demand. And when they do offer services, are they going to be community sensitive? culturally sensitive, aware of their place in the structural system. So obviously this is a gigantic topic, which we're not going to have. Just the, the whole idea of ensuring that we have a care team that is reflective of the patients that team is serving and is able to, you know, communicate really well and garner the trust of a patient population. Is there any just kind of very like things that we all relative to value-based care, which is how we started this conversation. Is there any just like really big directions or constructs or pillars that you would direct listeners of this show to pay some attention to as they're contemplating, you know, how to construct value-based care programs that don't have avoidable perverse incentives? We all need to I hate to use the word experiment, <laughs> but that is the word. Like We all need to include health equity indices in our structures of a value-based system. We need to carefully consider how we might use social factors in our case mix adjustments. And it's not to say, hey, it's okay to deliver lower quality to this patient population because that's one way you can interpret case mix adjustments. It might be to say, okay, we found this population within our study, might be race-based, which is a social construct. It might be insurer-based. It might be census tract-based. Whatever that bottom line might be, it might be say, okay, now we're going to incentivize reducing the disparity in that population. So I think what we all have to do is do something, (laughs) like literally do something. But I also think we need to study it. We need to make sure that when we try it, we do it with the best knowledge in the room, bring, bringing our community partners 
in the room to have discussions about how we might do this. Because in fact, the reason we have to experiment is because no one's got the right answer. And some of it might be wrong, but you want to be wrong. In this case, you want to fail fast and you want to be wrong with everybody on board saying, yep, we tried the best that we could. It was the best try. We're going to try this next. Really kind of bringing that agile, almost startup mentality into the healthcare system in order to, you know, exactly like you said, you know, try something, see how it goes, measure the result and if, and then consistently iterate. And again, I think with all the partners at the table, I think part of the problem is when healthcare does it, if you're a large healthcare system and you're doing that alone, I think that's where you're going to have a problem. You're saying the large healthcare system needs their community partners at the table when they're talking about how might they look at their population and and might stratify. They need their payer at the table, right? You need everybody at the table to have some conversation about how you might. Otherwise, it's going to be perceived negatively, I think, and without trust, right? It won't be trustworthy and you, you won't be trustworthy in your approach if you're not transparent. Maybe that's a better word to be. And have you seen those conversations actually net something? Because I could definitely see you get all those stakeholders at the table and everybody's got some conflict of interest with like everything. You know what I mean? Like, right, right, yeah. What's that that proverb? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far. If you want to go far, go together. I mean, I, I think that's why you actually have to have patience in the room, right? Like that's actually why the community and the patient is probably the most important there, right? Because their bias is the bias we want in the room, right? So even if you have a doctor and a nurse and even a patient maybe from a health system in the room, like that's not representative of the larger intent here, that you have to have all these different stakeholders. Otherwise, even if you've got different roles within one organization, they still are not going to reflect the overall impact of what's going on unless you get all of the other stakeholders that have a vested interest here together. Right. Making a healthcare plan without your payers on the, at the table is just short sight, right? Like there are certain things in this day and age that I think are short sight. Now, you know, God forbid you actually might even talk to your competitor, right? Like, because you might be taking care of the same community. You don't have to show all your cards, but you do want to have a conversation to make sure everybody's going in the right direction. Dr. Lipson, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.